Hello, hi, and welcome. That's hello to everyone I don't know, hi to those I do, and of course welcome to all of you. This is CLLME, The Diagnosis. Let me start by welcoming everyone to my journey and share my wish that you find it both enjoyable and informative. But before I begin, let me set the scene. I received my initial diagnosis that I have chronic lymphatic leukemia in March 2020. At the time, the world was just starting the long fight against COVID-19, a highly contagious variant of the SARS virus. SARS is short for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome and is caused by the SARS coronavirus. It was common for people who caught the virus to be hospitalised with severe pneumonia-like symptoms. Now, each country had its own approach to the emerging pandemic, with them ranging from what could be considered a total lockdown of their population, with very considerable restrictions on movement, right through to what could almost be considered a life-as-normal approach. The UK had started a life-as-normal approach. And it was the hope that this would achieve what is known as herd immunity. However, it was around the time of my diagnosis that the approach was being changed. Initially, the government started with a six-week lockdown, which included very strict measures to try and stop the then fast-rising number of cases and hospitalizations caused by them. The rules during this initial period were simple. Only key workers in areas such as healthcare and food distribution were allowed to go to work. Everyone else was only allowed to leave their home once a day, and this was only for exercise or to obtain essential shopping, such as food or medical supplies. After this initial lockdown period came to an end, most of the population were allowed to start interacting, albeit in a somewhat controlled manner. There was still a more restrictive guidance issued for people with a weakened immune system, which includes some forms of cancer, such as CLL. Here is an extract of a letter that I received from the NHS shortly after my initial diagnosis. This guidance was specifically for everyone who lived in England who had been identified as clinically extremely vulnerable. Other parts of the UK had their own rules and guidance. You must not leave or be outside of your home except for limited purposes. 
we are advising clinically extremely vulnerable people to stay at home as much as possible, except to go outdoors for exercise or to attend essential health appointments. Try to keep all contact with others to a minimum and avoid busy areas. You are strongly advised to work from home. If you cannot work from home, then you should not attend work. You should avoid all non-essential travel by private or public transport. This includes not travelling to work, school or the shops. You should still travel to hospital and GP appointments unless told otherwise by your doctor. You are advised not to go to the shops. Use online shopping if you can or ask others to collect and deliver shopping for you. You are advised not to go to a pharmacy. As you can see, while the guidance did fall short of saying you should not leave your home, it is very clear that contact with people outside of your immediate household should be avoided whenever possible. And in fact, interaction by anybody in your immediate household should also be limited when practical. You may wonder why I explain this. It is to give a background as to what was happening and to explain the already heightened sense of concern about life in general before I got my diagnosis. Anyway, let's get back to my journey. So how did I discover that I have chronic lymphatic leukemia? Well, at the time, I was not aware that I had any health issues and it all started with a routine blood test that was performed during my annual medical checkup, which I did attend prior to the UK's COVID-19 restrictions coming into place. From what I understand, this is not uncommon and can be how many people who have been diagnosed started their journey with CLL. The initial concern was raised from an abnormally high white blood cell count. This was detected as part of a full blood count. Well, when I say high, this was a reading of about 10,500 cells per milliliter of blood, with the normal male range being between 5 and 10,000. The full blood count, for anybody who is not aware, is a very common test performed by doctors to check someone's general state of health, or for that matter, as a general diagnosis aid. Of course, in my case, this was initially performed as part of a medical for a general health checkup. The abnormality that it reported was caused to trigger further investigation. The first time that I was aware that anything was wrong 
or for that matter, a cause for concern, was when I received a phone call from my doctor's secretarial team to arrange a follow-up blood test. The phone call came when I was focused on work and I just did not really absorb, or for that matter, query, why the second blood test was necessary. If I am honest, and in hindsight, this was probably a sign that I was juggling too many things. I guess that in part it comes from being a workaholic. Anyway, I turned up as arranged and because of the newly introduced COVID-19 restrictions was asked to wait in the car park until called in for my test. This precaution was not because they thought I might have CLL. It was in fact in place for all face-to-face medical appointments at that time. The idea was to limit people's interaction to as few as possible and for as short a time as necessary. The theory behind this was that it would help reduce the risk of possible cross-infections. The nurse administering my test was running a little late and was apologetic for keeping me waiting. Apparently, she needed to confirm what bloods were required for my test. In layman's term, how much blood and which vials to use. She also commented that it was an unusual test, which is why she needed to confirm this information. Being focused on work for a second time, I did not really take this in. And after the required blood had been taken, I just headed off home to wait my results. For completeness, and of course of those of a medical bent, this second blood test was a FACS chronic panel. Not that I asked or had it explained to me at that time although I don't believe there was any intent to hide this from me. From what I understand, the process up to this point, that is apart from any protection measures or precautions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, was quite typical. And in fact, this is how many people who have been diagnosed with CLL may well have received their diagnosis. Although I do suspect most people would have been a little bit more engaged in the process and asked a few more questions than I had. What was not typical, although again quite similar, is what came next. A few days after my blood test had been taken, I was sitting in my home office working as normal. It was mid-morning, the phone rang, and it was my doctor. After the initial hellos, she went on to inform me that I have been diagnosed with CLL. I can honestly say this meant nothing to me, as at that time I had not come across this abbreviation. The issue with abbreviations is that everyone involved in the conversation 
needs to understand what they mean and how they are used. You can get all sorts of confusion if you use the abbreviation to mean different things. And up until this point in my life, I certainly had not come across CLL. Now, I do understand why my doctor opted to open with the abbreviation. It certainly sounds a lot less scary than the full name, which of course she did go on to tell me. I suspect in part this comes from experience and opening a discussion with words such as leukemia and chronic can cause more issues and be a lot more scary for the patient. I should also add that she did apologise for not inviting me into the surgery for a face-to-face discussion. But given the current government guidance as a result of COVID-19, this was just not possible at that time. As I look back on this call, I can only say that I was in a state of shock. And while I did understand what I was being told, I was not really taking it in. I was certainly in no state to ask intelligent questions, other than the obvious ones around what are the next steps. Although I suspect this came more from my normal, calm and analytical nature than anything else. Being in the house alone, I had no one to discuss the call with and was left numb, in shock and disbelief. As the minutes went on following the call, I was coming up with more questions than answers. My solution to this was to hit the internet and do some research. Well, if I'm totally honest, go and make a cup of tea and then hit the internet. It would be unfair to say that my doctor was at fault for leaving me with these questions. I needed time to process and absorb what she had told me, and it was only after this that the questions really started to form. And I was offered the option of a callback should I require it. Once I had made myself my cup of tea and taken 20 minutes or so to clear my head, I headed off to the NHS website. I also took the opportunity to visit some of the UK-based cancer support sites to see what they had to offer. I've included the links to all of these on my website. This is what I gathered during my initial research. I had been diagnosed at a relatively young age for the condition, being in my early 50s. With most people not being diagnosed until well into their 60s or even older. This was not all bad news, as in recent years the tests had become more sensitive which in turn allowed for people to be diagnosed at a younger age. I had not experienced noticeable symptoms. These included night sweats, tiredness 
breathlessness and swelling lymph nodes. My doctor had already confirmed most of this during our phone call. Not that I really took it in, and this at least did explain the questions I was being asked. Most people following their diagnosis do have a long life expectancy, although in the latter stages of the condition, it is likely to require some modification to the patient's lifestyle. Treatments do exist, but these are normally kept until the condition worsens, and the preference is to avoid medication in the early days, instead opting for what is known as watch, wait and see. I will come back to that one in a later episode. Although all of this was still scary, and I had been left waiting for a referral with the haematology team to allow them to perform further checks and provide me with additional information, I did at least feel slightly reassured. Now, at this time, as previously mentioned, COVID-19 patients were placing significant demands and pressures on healthcare providers worldwide, and the UK was certainly no exception to this. They were running beyond capacity, forcing them to make hard decisions around priority of care, which in turn resulted in lower priority cases being left longer than normal for referral or treatment. Unfortunately, this meant that I would need to wait several months before I could get to see or talk to a consultant. Given everything that was going on, I am sure you can understand what I was feeling and how emotionally stressing this was. I guess this may be a good point to come back to the question that I raised in the previous episode. Is chronic lymphatic leukemia a life-changing condition? As I said, most definitely. There is no question about it. So now comes the difficult bit. On a scale of 1 to 10, how life-changing is it? Last time, I left it here. But after that first phone call, and with my limited internet-based research, how do you think I answered this question? Well, at that time, I would probably have to say that I felt it was about a three or four. And even for some time following this, I did not really change my decision. Well, I have to say, at least from my point of view. Please don't misunderstand me. I still was very concerned and understood the need to be careful. And in fact, very quickly started to make plans to allow for changes I wanted to make in my life following my diagnosis. Anyway, why did I come to this conclusion? I had been diagnosed relatively young for the condition. And I had definitely been diagnosed 
in the very early stages. I had no primary, or for that matter, secondary symptoms at that time. It was not noticeably impacting me or my life. Now, was I correct or was I just in denial? I can leave that one up to you. But I was certainly more than happy with my decision. Like most people, following my initial diagnosis, I did have many questions. Although they did take me some time to formulate and organise. I was definitely in shock. But I guess they could be grouped into one of the following categories. What is CLL? How bad is my condition? What does it mean to me? What can I do about it? What happens now? And of course, why me? I knew that I was not alone, and most definitely not the first person to go through this. One of the best pieces of advice that I found during my internet research was to share my journey with a buddy. Someone to support me, as required, but not necessarily someone with the condition. The idea is that they are there to support you as you need them. It is also useful to have a second pair of eyes and ears and a trusted sounding board at certain points during your journey. Okay, so I think that about covers it and explains how my journey started. So until next time, here is one last thought to leave you with. Who do you tell that you have CLL? And when should you tell them? I know that there will be many different answers to this question. So while I leave you to consider your response, I will come back to it and share my solution next time. So until then, thank you for joining me and I invite you to continue on my journey when I will discuss what happened in the first 24 hours.